Welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode 40. My goodness, Gary. Uh, Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell with you. Our Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. On the program this time around, we'll talk some baseball and some television with two always interesting and entertaining guests. Writer Colin Fleming will look at the career of Jackie Robinson and his impact on baseball from a pure baseball sense. It was a, for a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal that we based our conversation But we get things underway by talking with a guy I think is America's premier television critic, Alan Sepinwall of Rolling Stone. He's the author of a number of books, including the new one with Matt Zoller-Seitz entitled The Sopranos Sessions, looking back on the 20th anniversary of the debut of a show that really changed the face of television and helped usher in this uh, modern golden age of TV dramas. Here's our conversation with Alan Sepinwall about The Sopranos. The Sopranos Sessions is, in many ways, a return to your roots for you and Matt uh, as the critics originally for Tony Soprano's hometown paper. Yeah, we were writing for the Star-Ledger of Newark, New Jersey before the show even debuted. They reached out to us back when they were first making the pilot just for help producing those fake copies of the newspaper that Tony would get at the end of his driveway. And, you know, we realized immediately, oh, this is going to be a big deal if the show shot in our circulation area, set in our circulation area. As it turned out, our editor had gone to Rutgers with James Gandolfini. So there was a lot of different connections there. I grew up one town over from David Chase, the show's creator. So we were embedded with the series pretty much from beginning to end. So it was nice to be able to return to that and bring things a little full circle with this book. By the way, I feel like I should get an honorary subscription to the Star-Ledger uh, from, from having you on. We've had Mark Diano on talking about his wonderful new novel, and, and Jerry Eisenberg's been on a couple times with us. Uh, Mark and Jerry great. Mark is the guy I was talking about. Yeah. He went to Rutgers with Jim. They were on the freshman dorm together, and you remember that big dent in Jim's forehead? <laughs> yes. Mark put it there when they were horsing around. He slammed a door in his face during a game of darts or something. <laughs> I love that story. Uh, well, we knew this was going to be a different type of TV series 20 years ago, and, and different than even what we thought it would be, as you point out in the book, right from the opening credits. Yeah, no, it's. You know, every mob show to that point, every mob movie had been a story of New York wise guys or Chicago wise guys. This was a New Jersey suburban wise guy. The the SUV rumbles out of the Lincoln Tunnel going west away from the city. And, you know, it goes into these neighborhoods that I had grown up in and these stores I had shopped at and that, you know, a lot of our readers had. It was really different and exciting. And so much of what we think of as, as fairly commonplace in episodic television today had its roots with The Sopranos. Yeah, it's basically the most influential scripted TV show since maybe I Love Lucy. If you look at the way television looks in the year 2019, at Netflix, at Amazon, at HBO, FX, you know, Game of Thrones, all uh, Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, all of these shows that have come in the years since then that are more serialized, that are more uh, ambiguous in terms of narrative, in terms of morality, that challenge their viewers in different ways, these would not exist in the form that they do if not for the success of this show. Well, I absolutely love the structure of the book, and, and it begins with the recaps and, and going through every single episode from all seven seasons. Uh, great to revisit those and, and your thoughts and Matt's thoughts, but also to be reminded that there's some great television in there, but not everyone was gold. No, 
it's a, it doesn't always work. It's definitely a more uneven show than a lot of the ones that followed it. You know, Breaking Bad is a much more narratively tight show than The Sopranos was. You know, so there's some characters that don't work, some subplots, whole episodes like the Columbus Day one. But when it works, my goodness, the the big worry about doing this book was it has been a long time since I'd watched the show, and I worried like, okay, we're going to look at this, and it's going to feel like some dusty old relic full of cliches that have you know been copied again and again in the 20 years since the show debuted, and I liked it even better most of the time when I was watching it. It was fantastic. Well, and everybody's got their own list. It's hard to pick one, but a list of favorite episodes uh, high on my list because of the main connection is college. And I think that's the episode where I reached out to everybody I knew and said, if you're not watching this show, why are you not watching? You've got to see what happened in Maine. No, that's entirely the episode where The Sopranos became the phenomenon that we think of now. Because the first four episodes of the show, they were very good, but the reviews had been uh, strong, but not overwhelmingly so, and I don't think that critics have been given that one yet. And the morning after that episode aired, that's when I started hearing from people exactly like you saying those things like, have you heard about this Soprano show? You've really got to see it. I can't believe what they did last night. Well, and because that's also the episode, as you point out, where we had grown to like this guy, and we knew that, that Tony was not a good guy, but he was also pretty likable. And then when he does what he did in that episode, now you're faced with the choices you've made as a viewer as well. Yeah, and David Chase, the creator of the show, had to fight to do that. We did these long set of new interviews for the book about it, and he said he had to fight with HBO. HBO begged him not to do it, said, if you show him killing this guy, you're going to lose the audience. And Chase's argument was, if he doesn't kill the guy, that's how we're going to lose the audience, because they're going to think he's a phony, and, you know, and he was right. What's your favorite? Maybe not the best episode, but the one that uh, rings true for you more than others. Uh, I mean, it, Pine Barrens is certainly the most rewatchable over and mm. over again, the one where Christopher and Paulie are lost in the woods. It's just this perfect little standalone episode and very funny in addition to everything else. But, I mean, I kind of have to go with stuff in the first season, like the the season one finale where Tony goes to confront his mother, uh that relationship, I think, is still the strongest one that the show had throughout its entire run. And the climax there where he grabs the pillow as he's going to see her in the nursing home is just extraordinary. And another one that I love is long-term parking from season five, which is the end of the Adriana story, which is the show was not usually interested in just being a straightforward mob drama, even though a lot of the audience, that's all that they wanted from it. But when it did it in episodes like that, it was just spectacular. Uh, one of the great parts of the book, and we'll talk about it more, are your conversations, several of them with David Chase. And, uh, well, we, he got right to it when you uh, asked him about the inspiration for Livia Soprano. No doubt about where that came from. That was his mother. The whole idea for the show came from David Chase spending years telling friends these crazy stories about his difficult relationship with his mother, and they would always laugh. And finally his wife, Denise, said, David, you've got to make a show out of this. And he couldn't figure out how to do it until he heard like that Paramount wanted him to maybe make a TV version of The Godfather, which he wisely did not want to do, but it made him realize, oh, well, what if I do you know, the difficult mother of a mob boss? And it worked. We're talking with Alan Seppenwall. The book is The Sopranos Sessions uh, that he's written along with Matt Zoller-Seitz. Uh, 
I, I wonder, because it changed so much about television and what you guys were doing at the time in writing about it and focusing on individual episodes, did the weekly schedule, the broadcast schedule from HBO, and even the layoffs between seasons make it more primed for that kind of in-depth analysis and the analysis that viewers of the show did that you can't do today as easily when when shows drop a whole season at a time on Netflix or Hulu and, and the way a lot of people watch TV today. Yeah, that's a very big difference, and it really worked in the Sopranos' favor. Also, the fact that there were not nearly as many shows like it in terms of tone or aspiration, whether or not they were as good. Um so it, it kind of had the field all to itself, and it had a week in between episodes and sometimes a year between seasons. So you could have a lot of speculation and a lot of talk, and now everything just comes in a rush. And even shows that will air weekly on, on an HBO or an FX or whatever, there's a lot of people who just wait to binge them later. So everyone's watching on their own schedule, whereas back in the day it was oh my God, I can't believe what they did to Ralphie. And you didn't have to worry about you know, spoiling your coworkers or everything because they had watched it the same night you had. Well, the analysis that you guys do is so tremendous in this, including the symbolism. That's such a big part of this show from the number seven to the images that appear. And, and to me, that's one of the things I loved about the series and love about the book. It's, it's in the days. I go back to the days of vinyl when we would re-listen to albums over and over again and, and look for what we thought were those messages hidden deep in the lyrics somewhere. And it's that same kind of thing. It is. And, and this sort of kicked off something similar to, to that rock revolution in the 60s and 70s where you start like passing around the DVDs, like people would you know give out all the albums and say, "Man, you got to see this. You got to you got to really dig deep. There's so much there." And it's one of the two or three shows I always had the most fun writing about because every episode was so layered and so dense with meaning, and there's so many different ways you can analyze you know every story and every scene. The David Chase sessions are tremendous, and of course, got a lot of attention when the first book came up because. Some people believed that David Chase was giving away an answer to the long-asked question in there, but when you read the interviews, it's a bit more ambiguous than that. He had plans, certainly, but it ended the way he and the writers and everybody involved wanted it to end. Yeah, there was, as a member of the media, I should have been prepared for this, but I guess I wasn't, whereas the, the story kind of got aggregated and it turned into a game of telephone where people started reporting something that was not what he had said, and then other people were reporting that, not even having read the book, but just having read the other stories. Um, the short version is he talked about a different idea for the end of the show that would have much more clearly pointed to the death of Tony Soprano as he was going to plead for peace with the New York mob. But then he changed his mind, and he did the ending that we saw at the ice cream parlor. Uh, and that's, you know, and we wound up talking about that for a very long time, and I don't think you we came out of it with any clearer picture of what exactly happened. But I think for the first time, I feel very comfortable with what Chase's intentions were about what the scene means. And with a show like The Sopranos, I, I think that's a more interesting thing to consider than the plot. And I absolutely love the debate you and Matt have entitled, Don't Stop Believing You Know Exactly What Happened at the End of The Sopranos. And, and some great theories in there, including this notion that because of the camera angles... Tony, in some ways, actually seeing himself in the scene, that maybe this is all a dream and maybe the answer, one of the possible answers, is that he's dead even before they get to Holstein's. That's entirely possible. The, the way he edited it was 
different from the way that any other, you know, episode of the series had been presented and almost any other scene had been presented. He broke a lot of sort of basic rules of cinematic grammar to give you that sense of disorientation and to have you asking these questions about, did he die? What's, what's going on here? Why am I so scared when I'm watching Meadow Parallel Park? This should be really dull, and instead I'm on the edge of my seat. And the bigger question is not what happened, but what does it mean? What do you think it means 20 years later? I think it means whether or not you think he actually died or whether or not you think Meadow died or you know Chase was metaphorically whacking the audience or whatever. <laughs> I think the scene's about death. It's about the idea that you know we are, we are given these lives on temporary loan, and that loan can be called due at any moment without warning, uh, and we all sort of travel through life understanding but not really wanting to think about that. And that scene is about sort of forcing you to confront that feeling and that knowledge for a little bit. And it's it's heightened because for a guy like Tony Soprano, the odds of him suddenly getting whacked are much greater than for the rest of us. But you never know. And it's certainly like I was terrified when I watched it that night. Every time we rewatched it to do research for the book, I still felt that sense of dread, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen and what we weren't going to see. Uh, it's it's an amazing, one of the great endings of all time. And, and callbacks are such a big part of this show, and even at the end there, there are callbacks to a number of earlier messages and possible hints, including uh, what Bobby had said about death. Yeah, and earlier in the season, Bobby says, you know, I, I, bet, you, I bet when it comes, you don't even hear it happen, uh, <laughs> which a lot of the audience mistakenly remember as Bobby saying, I guess when you die, everything cuts to black as their way to, you know, sort of solve the ending. And I don't think the ending is meant to be solved. Uh, it's just sort of meant to be felt. I have to tell you, the research that you and Matt have done, the footnotes alone are, are worth the price of the book because there's so much great information. And I particularly love the way you guys uh, trace and, and sort of sketch the biographies and the careers of some of the many, many actors who appeared in so many key roles in the series, their connections to, to not just Goodfellas, but uh, much of American television and film over the last, last half century. It's an amazing cast. And originally it started off, it was just a lot of people who had been in Goodfellas and then a few other relatively unknown character actors like Gandolfini and Edie Falco. But the more successful the show became, the more access they had to different kinds of people. And so a Joe Pantoliano could come in, a Steve Buscemi could come in, all, you know, all of these people. And it was, it's wonderful. The memories, the thoughts that you and Matt had about James Gandolfini and, of course, David Chase's eulogy, uh, man, I, if anybody can read that and not tear up, they're a heck of a lot tougher than me. That was such a wonderful tribute to him. Jim was a very mysterious but often really wonderful and warm-hearted guy and very pathologically shy, which you would not think of both for someone in his profession and also someone who became famous for playing a character like this. But he loved acting, and he really didn't like the attention that came with it. And it was a really fascinating and bittersweet dichotomy to watch while he was still with us. And one of the more amazing things that's happened since the book came out is David Chase has now been working on this prequel movie, and they recently announced that uh, Jim's son, Michael, is going to play young Tony at some point in this movie, The Many Saints of Newark, which I, like, that's, the son, the son gets to literally step into the father's footsteps. That's beautiful. Oh, and it sounds wonderful. Now, uh, there were some discussions online, and it may have been uh, on your Twitter feed, about the timeline for this, because that series takes place in the 60, uh, 60s when... 
Tony would have been, uh, you know, what, eight, nine years old, but yeah, obviously Michael's a lot older. The first season set around the time that this movie is supposed to take place, and Tony's a little kid. But there's no rule that says the whole movie has to be set there, and it's it's supposed to be mainly about Christopher's father, Dickie, who dies when Christopher's a baby. So it could be a case of, like, we start off in the 60s and we move through the mm. 70s and into the early 80s, you know, and we know around the time that Tony, you know, he was, I think, 22 when he killed his first guy to, you know, sort of, you know, break into the mob. We know around how old he was when he and Jackie robbed the card game, all of these things. So we could see little glimpses of that along the way. Um, you know, Michael Gandolfini's 19, can look a little bit older or a little bit younger, but certainly cannot play Tony as a little kid. So I have to think the movie is going to cover more time than just 1967. So as you look back 20 years to the start of this series and, and what it became and, and what it remains today among fans, hard to find any list of the greatest shows of all time that doesn't have The Sopranos somewhere in the top two or three. What's the legacy of this show in terms of its impact on creating television? Like I said, TV now is not the way it is without The Sopranos. It, it might have some things in common, but, you know, television is a very imitative business. So you had this show. It was a huge hit. It broke all of these rules that TV had had unwritten for 50 years. And suddenly executives said, oh, well, maybe we were wrong about all these things. And so you got a lot of shows that were very much like it, like Breaking Bad, like The Shield, like Mad Men, like The Wire, like Deadwood, and, you know, on and on, you know, through House of Cards and Ozark and things like that. So these shows are there specifically because of the success, but also the larger sweep of what television has become. And the nice thing about this book is I feel like the show had been a little bit forgotten over the last few years just because it's not on Netflix and younger viewers only know what's on Netflix. And there was just more talk about the things that had followed it, like Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And it was sort of being like, oh, well, that's an important show, but, you know, you know, I like these other ones better. And since the book came out, since the anniversary happened in early January, I've just heard a lot of people saying that they, this gave them an excuse to go back and watch again and, and, like we did, realize just how amazing The Sopranos is. And that's been really gratifying. The book is a huge success uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. Are you surprised at the reaction? I'm very gratified by the reaction, and it's it's been nice to see because, you know, it's a 20-year-old show, uh, and it's one of the great ones, but, you know, our culture is always very much about things in the moment. So to see that there's still this much love and this much attention for it has been great. Alan Seppenwall, along with Matt Zoller, cites the author of The Soprano Sessions, an absolute must-have if you're a fan of the show, and if you're not, read the book, and you'll become a fan of the show. Alan, as always, it's a great to talk with you. We wish you continued success, and thank you so much for being with us. Rich, it is my pleasure every single time. We'll talk soon. Alan Seppenwall discussing his book with Matt Zoller, cites The Soprano Sessions. We'll take a break, and when we come back, We'll discuss Jackie Robinson and his on-field exploits with writer Colin Fleming. First, this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
We recently celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of Jackie Robinson. And of course, legendary as a pioneer breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. But our friend writer Colin Fleming had an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal last week that focused purely on Jackie's on-field exploits and how he changed the game regardless of race, Uh, was a guy who had a huge impact and maybe, as Colin says, one of the five most impactful players of all time. What I wanted to do in this op-ed was something that might sound simple, but I think these days, It's pretty radical, and that was to discuss Jackie Robinson with making no mention whatsoever of color, race, crossing lines, that kind of history, which, as we know, of course, is formidable, obviously. What Robinson and what Larry Doby did three months later in the American League, basically, doesn't get as much credit, of course, although I think he should, is beyond the pale of what we could expect from an athlete. But on the field, Jackie Robinson was someone so transcendent as a talent, I would argue that if there are five or six guys who have changed the way the sport is played, Robinson is among them. And I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, I'm doing this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Like a million people are going to see it about Jackie Robinson, and I don't mention race at all. It's like, well, you can't do that. That's his entire story. I said, all right. You're not like exactly Erasmus, friend of mine, but you're a really <laughs> smart guy. And you think that's his entire story. And it's not his entire story. And if I was Jackie Robinson and I was awesome, I was transcendent at playing that sport, I'd want people to know the manner in which I was transcendent. Well, exactly. And, and let's start with the fact that he was, as you point out in many ways, he was Ricky Henderson before Ricky Henderson. He was a big dude, too. He was Henderson before Henderson, except he was a middle infielder. Now, you have to realize that until, if you're under the age of 30, okay, you might think like a middle infielder is somebody with pop, right? Remember the whole, you had Jeter, you had A-Rod, you had Garcia Parra, those guys all at the same time, and Nomar could hit 30 home runs, A-Rod could hit 50, But for a long time, that was not the norm. If you were a shortstop or a second baseman, you were a live little dude, right? Or you were tall and thin. You were like Mark Belanger. You could pick it, but you couldn't really hit it that well at the dish. So that was unusual that Robinson, he was a a strapping guy. He was almost six foot tall, 200 pounds. Now you think that's not very big at all. That was awfully big in 1947 you follow something like the NHL, I remember when Marc Messier was in the league, and he was, what, 6'1", 210? And that mm. was this just gargantuan, ferocious, frightening power forward. Robinson was basically the power forward of middle infielders as a second baseman. And at the same time that he was this sort of spark plug-shaped guy, like a more toned Kirby Puckett, he was faster than anyone maybe had ever been to that point in the league. He was fast. He was big. He could hit for power. He was obviously ferocious, we know, from his sort of moral composition. And he was a guy who was there to basically kick the ass of everyone who 
tried to stand in his way. I'm looking at his 1949 numbers. How's this for a season from your second baseman? A 342 average, a 432 on base percentage, 37 steals, 16 home runs, and 124 runs batted in. Look at his total bases for that season, right? It's well north of 300. Yeah, 313. Now, if you just hear that number in a vacuum, it might not mean anything to you. 300 total bases is like big boy total bases. You can make the Hall of Fame and be an offensive power and never have 300 total bases in the season once. My personal hero, Carlton Fisk, was that way. And it wasn't because he was a catcher who didn't play a lot of games because Don Zimmer ran him out there 150-plus times a year for a couple years in a row. And even still, like in 1977, he didn't get there. So that Robinson did that while playing this position, and let's not forget, this was a time when no matter what, if you were just kind of like garden variety, like white guy who everyone wanted to see excel, you were going to get smoked on the double play when you tried to hang in there as a second baseman. But it was a time where a lot of people did not wish to see Jackie Robinson do well. And when he was in there as the second baseman on the double play, and don't forget then, you have your blind side to the runner. It's not like the shortstop who clears the bag and he sees everything in front of him right. and he elevates. People were taking out Robinson. So he basically, I feel, to play that position and do what he did, he had to be, in the piece I compare him to, a ship's clique, like that bit of metal that you wrap, right, the, the, the rope around when mm-hmm. you're kind of coming in to pull it in and fasten it secure to the shore. He had to be like that, but he was, like you said, Henderson before Henderson. He changed the way the game could be played because he redefined the middle infielder position. Well, and of course, in the early part of the 20th century, baseball was all about small ball with sacrifices and the hit and run and stolen bases, and then Ruth, in many ways, changed it. It became a power game, but when you watch that video, that famous video of Robinson taking a lead off third base, rattling the pitcher and stealing home, and you think... In today's game, there's nobody who does that. Nobody even thinks they, you steal home. You know, if one person steals home in a season, it's front-page news. But Robinson made that a legitimate threat every time he was standing on third. He brought power to all aspects of his game. He made power kind of a fluid concept. And it was a lot of small ball, especially there had been a power era by then. And it's interesting that Ruth was in the 500 home run club when no one else was in the 300 home run club. And Ty Cobb won a triple crown with something like nine home runs. Mm. And not one of them cleared the fence. And Trish Speaker was kind of a Jackie Robinson-like player. But he was someone who did. He invaded the psyche of the pitcher. And you see that now a little bit. I remember watching the Red Sox this year that there are pitchers that do get rattled. Ian Kinsler, of all people. <laughs> veteran, right? Second baseman. Doesn't do much. Almost cost him a game. Did cost him a game. Almost cost him like a bigger chunk of the World Series. I remember watching him get on second base, though, and he just was this veteran where he seemed to know that the pitcher would be rattled. And he was taking this lead. He wasn't going anywhere, and you could see the divided concentration. And it made me think of Robinson, who's going halfway down the line. Now, it's like sometimes when you're out in, like, say you're out in your car. You're out in the Kimball Mobile, right? and you pull up to an intersection or a gas station, and someone walks up to your car. Like, you know they're approaching you on foot, 
What do you think? You think, uh-oh, here comes trouble. <laughs> this can't be, this isn't going to end well, right? It could just be someone who wants directions. But when you see that kind of presentation, you're like, oh, dear, I don't want to do this. That's what Robinson was when he was off of third base. He's so far down that you're thinking, what is up with this guy? What does he know that I don't know? It's not going to work out well for me. That's Colin Fleming talking about Jackie Robinson. You're on Downtown, the podcaster. Thanks to Colin and to Alan Seppenwall. Get his book. It's a great one. The Sopranos Sessions, available everywhere. Thanks for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.